Uh, my name is Jordan Rice. I'm one of the pastors here. Really grateful to be with you guys today. Uh, this Tuesday and this Wednesday, about 4,000 of New York's sharpest minds will all descend on the Jacob Javits Center to take the New York State Bar Exam. We have a couple of Renaissance people who will be there uh, this Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, yes, it's a, a great accomplishment, a great time. Uh, it's great, but it's also pretty miserable. Um, if you see some of those uh, people running to the front after service for prayer, you know exactly what it is. There is no such thing as an atheist before the bar exam. Everybody is praying. It might be Jesus, Allah, Oprah. I don't know who it is, but everybody's praying to somebody uh, that day. But as miserable as a bar exam is, even worse than a bar is all of the preparation in advance. Uh, I remember I just got finished with law school, it was 2006, and I took a bar preparation class, and every single day for about two or three months, I would wake up at like six, and I would start studying from 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. In the shower, I'd be going through different rules of law in my head on the subway. I'd be going through my index cards. During lunchtime, I would just be reciting over and over again every law that I could possibly imagine because I knew that eventually the bar exam was coming. It was a pretty miserable time for sure. Um, uh, one that I'm very happy I don't have to do again. That's for one thing. Uh, but two, it actually really did pause everything in my life. Like for three months, I was consumed with just this one thing. I missed some friends' weddings. Um, I didn't really want to go to all of their weddings anyway, but, um, but I missed out on a lot of life that I would have loved to have lived. Now, I'm not a superhuman, and certainly nobody else who's taken the bar, they're not superhumans, but it does show the limit and the lengths to which people will go to if they have the right hope for what's on the other side. People are willing to endure almost anything if they believe that what they are going through isn't meaningless, that what they are going through actually has a purpose, and what they're going through is going to transform them in one really amazing way. For those people who are taking the bar exam, they are hoping and praying that one day, pretty soon, they'll hopefully be able to put those wonderful words, attorney at law, behind their name. And as a result, they'll be able to charge you $400 per hour just to talk to them about anything. The human spirit is a wonderful one, one that I don't think we give it enough credit to the strengths uh, and the resiliency that we can possess, but the thing that actually will determine, in most cases, the ability to persevere, the ability to endure challenges, is what you are experiencing, uh, what your expectations are of this process, and whether or not you see this as necessary to get to something else on the other side. Uh, I've seen this firsthand in more um, uh, painful ways. Uh, I've told the story a lot of times about my late wife who battled with cancer, and uh, there were times when we would spend about a month at a time on the oncology ward at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And I remember some of the most gracious, gratitude-filled, amazing people that I have ever met were walking around recovering from surgery, pushing an IV pole, recovering from chemotherapy. Some of the people who were the, the first to laugh at jokes and some of the people who were so filled with endurance and expectation were the people going through, quite honestly, the most challenging time of their life. And why were they able to withstand and endure chemotherapy? Is it because they're superhumans? No. 
They were believing that what they were going through now, chemotherapy, was going to produce, them, uh, produce something inside of them that they desperately wanted, which was health and life and longevity. Nobody would be able to withstand anything like that if they didn't think that what they were going through was actually meaningful. Now, let's flip that around a little bit. Imagine if you were dealt some cards in your life and you thought they were meaningless. And you thought they were a detour from your life, not the path for your life. Then what, how would things change? Even the slightest inconvenience would feel like a hammer against you because you wouldn't have the expectations about what this thing is doing in your life. So if there's anything that you and I need, it's the right expectations set in place so that you and I can endure whatever life throws at us. Now, quite honestly, uh, having been a Christian for about 20 years, I've seen a lot of people come and I've seen a lot of people go. Friends who were even in ministry have started and given their life for things, and now they want nothing to do with Jesus. Oftentimes, what I've seen as the common thread in all of those situations is that life hits them in such a way that they weren't prepared for. They didn't have the right expectations in place, and as a result, when uh, things came their way, they ran in the other direction. Now, the scripture that we're looking at this morning is a topic that uh, many of us would rather not deal with. Um, it's a topic of suffering, and uh, here's what Paul is saying in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Uh, this passage cuts to the heart of what our expectations should be in life because it talks about this, this topic of suffering in almost a matter-of-fact way, uh, that the sufferings that Paul says of this present time, um, and, and oftentimes when you read it through the New Testament, if you were to read through the, the Gospel of Mark, for example, if you were to read through the book of Acts, over and over and over again, you would see over and over again suffering not as a detour from people's lives, but as a part of their lives with God. Now, here's why this is so important. You and I need the right expectations in place because if we don't have the right expectations, on top of the challenges we have, uh, you and I will be swimming through a sea of disappointment. Uh, I've heard disappointment described like this. Disappointment occurs in the gap between what you expected and what you got. Disappointment occurs in your life in big ways and in small ways between what you expected and what you got. What if you didn't have the right expectations of God? What if you didn't have the right expectations set in place of what God would allow or wouldn't allow in your life? What if you didn't have the right expectations about what your life should look like? Oftentimes what happens as a result is disappointment. Now, two of the things that I've seen decimate people's hope over and over again uh, in life, and in, certainly I've had my own fair share of battles with these two things, are unexplainable circumstances and unmet expectations. Two of the things above almost anything that I know that will kill whatever hope lies inside of you are unexplainable circumstances, when things happen in your life that nobody can give a good explanation for. Nobody, there's no book, there's no podcast, there's nothing that you can draw on that will give you an adequate answer as to why this is happening in your life. The other one, which we're going to dig to a lot today, are unmet expectations when people have severe and really deeply entrenched expectations of what God would allow, and then God allows something different. They have expectations of what God would never do, and God does that. They have expectations for what their life should look like by this time in their life, 
and that's not what their life looks like at this time. And what happens is, as a result, is severe disappointment in a lot of people's lives. Uh, a lot of us expect life to go one way, and when it doesn't, it leaves us in a pretty disappointed state. Now, I've certainly battled with this my, my whole life. I think if I'm being perfectly honest, uh, when my late wife was dealing with her cancer, one of the things that disturbed me more than anything was that we had done everything right. We waited until our wedding night to have sex. I was going to leave my job as an attorney to plant a church, and I was like, God, what more do you want from me? We're literally trying as hard as we could, but underneath that, you know my expectation was, God, if I do everything right, then you owe me the life that I want. If I cross all my T's and dot all my I's, and if I'm better than other people, then God, you owe me this life that I want. What that does for us is it creates expectations. Now, here's what I know to be true about expectations. In every single relationship in your life, whether this is with your parents, your kids, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your friends, uh, uh, your boss, your employee, with every single relationship that you have in your life, your relationship will, will thrive or fail based on the expectations that are set in place. And this includes God. So you would be extremely wise if you made sure that the expectations that you had of other people, and certainly of God, are ones that should be in place. Pete Scazzaro talks about uh, ways that we should evaluate what good expectations should be in our life, and he gives a rubric of four different things uh, to make sure that your expectations are realized, spoken, realistic, that's a big one, realistic, and agreed upon. The problem with a lot of our expectations is that we don't even know what expectations we had of God until something happens and we know we're disappointed. So I didn't know how deeply I expected that God would allow my entire life to go in a direction that I wanted it to until it didn't go in that direction. I didn't know why I was so upset. I didn't know why I was so disappointed until I started to actually sit back and think, God, what was I actually expecting my life should look like? What was I hoping? What was I almost, in some ways, if I'm being honest, what was I demanding that you do in my life? Now, there's a lot of relationships right now, and married couples, if you came here today uh, on uh, getting into a fight on your way into church, this is a fantastic way to undo the fight, um, to say, to make sure, to go through the expectations. Underneath the disappointment that you're experiencing with people are bad and unmet expectations. Some of these are really big. Some of these are not. The biggest one I want to harp on today is number three, realistic. Are the expectations that you have of other people, better question, are the expectations you have of God, are those realistic? Are those the ones that God has bound himself to? Here's the problem. A lot of us are holding God to promises that God never pro himself promised. And as a result, we're experiencing great seasons of disappointment. Now, when you and I, if you were to look throughout Scripture and to, uh, I like to call it making friends with people in Scripture, you would see that one of the most realistic expectations you should have of God is not that God would give you an easy pass to get through suffering, but rather that God would patiently and, 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 and sometimes painstakingly allow you to have seasons of suffering and pain and discomfort in your life. There's this one character in the Bible, uh, his name is John the Baptist, um, not because he's not John the Presbyterian or John the Methodist, um, but he was known for baptizing people, and he was Jesus' cousin, uh, not his play cousin, but his real cousin. Um, and one of the things that Jesus says of John the Baptist is a, a, a compliment that is unparalleled throughout Scripture. 
Here's what Jesus says about John the Baptist. There is nobody born from a woman better than him. There is not one single soul better than John the Baptist on this here planet. Do you want to know what happened in John the Baptist's life? John the Baptist was preaching the truth, and he was known for being in the wilderness, baptizing people, and he baptized Jesus himself. And later, John the Baptist was speaking out against King Herod and some of the things that King Herod was doing. And King Herod had John the Baptist beheaded and his head brought to him on a plate. The person in scripture that Jesus says there's nobody better on the planet than him, that guy was beheaded. You and I can have an expectation that if we do the right things, bad things won't happen to us, but that's not realistic if we look at the life of Scripture. Uh, if you go on and on throughout Scripture, you see this happening over and over again. Uh, There's a Scripture that I was reading a couple of days ago, and it just really hit me for the first time, the depth of what the imagery was saying. And it comes from Revelations 21, uh, 3 and 4, and it's a description of heaven. And it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the part that hit me. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will, no longer, will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. The promise that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eye means that one of the first tasks of the risen Jesus that he will do for the faithful, the faithful saints is to wipe away their tears. What does that imply? What does that mean? It means that when the saints go marching in, many of them are coming into heaven, into God's presence, with tear-stained cheeks from disappointments and pain in this life. Some of these pains are not resolved until they meet Jesus. Some of these heartaches leave them in such a place that they arrive at heaven's gates still with tears in their face. What does this mean? It means that to be faithful does not give us, um, does not free us from the life and the reality of what suffering should be in our lives. 2 Timothy 3.12 says it pretty, plain, pretty plainly. It says, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. God does not promise us a suffering-free life, and to expect that God would give you that would make you, would be really, really unrealistic. And it's setting you up to be extremely disappointed with God at some point in your life. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, Peter says it like this, Dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the fiery, fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Here's what Peter's saying. This is not unusual. Don't be surprised when this happens to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, over and over again in the New Testament, Paul discusses suffering not as the exception to the story, but it is the story. And for you, you and I would do very well if you spend some time today uh, unpacking, God, what do I expect from a life with you? Do I really expect that you'll give me everything I want if I do the right things? Now, very quickly, the Bible, as, as much as it talks about the expectation of suffering, it also and equally talks about the reality of prayer and for us to, to come to God with prayer for all of our requests and how God is a good father that wants to give us good things. So this is not fatalism that just says, oh, well, your life is going to be miserable and one day you're going to die and the people are going to eat potato salad at your funeral. 
Um, and they might not eat it, depending on who, on who made it. <laughs> this is not fatalism, but it is, I think, a good place for us to stop and look at the mirror and say, God, what am, what am I really expecting for you to do in my life? Now, one of the uh, <laughs> things that I've done, even in previous messages where we talked about suffering was, I don't think I did the best job explaining what suffering is. So uh, by talking about suffering, I think people immediately jumped to the, uh, uh, the, the notion of tragedy, that suffering had to involve excruciating pain, like being a Knicks fan or something like that. <laughs> suffering doesn't always have to be that painful. It's described uh, in scripture as anything which hurts or irritates. This is what suffering is throughout scripture. Anything which hurts or irritates. And here's what Paul is saying. The things in your life which hurt, the things in your life which irritate you, these things are not meaningless. And in those situations, you're not alone. There's a number of ways which you see suffering in Scripture. One of those ways is in generosity. Uh, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, the author talks about how those people were willing to suffer alongside them in their giving. And essentially, what he was talking about with their generosity was they didn't just give the $5 that was falling out the end of their pockets. They gave something until it hurt. Now, don't worry, we're not going to pass the offering baskets around, so don't get nervous as I talk about giving. But if we would be perfectly honest, if you were to evaluate how you give, not just the church, not just here, but in general, are you giving just at the point of complete convenience and ease? If it is, then that's not the generosity that's described in Scripture. The generosity that's described in Scripture is giving to a point to where it hurts, giving sacrificially, giving that it actually costs you something to give that. And that's a, a great example of everyday suffering that God calls us to live out, not to live for ourselves, but to give in such a way that it irritates us or that it hurts us. Another example of suffering in Scripture that I think is really important for us to get uh, are the, the normal trials and obstacles that come your way because you follow Jesus. Now, this one is to all the Christians in the room, so if you don't know where you stand, uh, you guys have a free pass for this one. Scripture over and over and over again describes trials and obstacles that should come your way if you follow Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 10 and 11. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of what? Because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffering in this context means that because you follow Jesus, you will encounter irritation and pain. And this is really important because in order for you to grow, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, in order for you to grow into what God is trying to create inside of you, you can't run away from all the irritation and the pain that is associated with following Jesus. Now, in our current climate, in our current culture, uh, there are no shortage of horrendous examples of what Christianity is in America. And some of the most painful uh, things are being done at the present by Christians. Uh, we've cited this before. We talked about it. Uh, people are quoting out scripture to separate kids, little kids, from their families. And these are the Christians who are doing some of the most heinous acts thinkable. They're not even thinkable. They're, they're so ridiculous. And people are slapping Jesus and slapping scripture on that. And as a result, I think the first temptation 
is to spend most of your time and your energy distancing yourself from other Christians instead of living out boldly whatever God is calling you to live out. If we were to be perfectly honest, uh, there's probably a handful of you in this room who run the risk of uh, prioritizing morality over people. But there's a great many more number of you guys who are in danger of or already there of just assimilating completely into the culture. Assimilation is when you don't want anybody to speak badly of you, so you downplay and undermine your commitment to Jesus out of fear of rejection. Now, this is a really, really important thing. And listen, I am not telling people to pick fights. I am not telling you to get on your social media and start yelling out random things. I'm not, I am not uh, advocating these things, but there are some people who, because of this current climate and because you're not wanting the irritation and the pain, people don't even know that you're a Christian. People don't even know how much Jesus uh, means to you, if he does mean something. If I'm being perfectly honest, this is certainly my temptation as well. Uh, there is a spectrum of agreeableness and disagreeableness, and I marvel at people who are disagreeable. I wish I could be them, because I am on the far other end of the spectrum of agreeable, also known as a people pleaser. Uh, me and my therapist are talking about that this Wednesday, so don't give me any advice in the hallway. With agreeable people and with people who are people pleasers, really what you're living for is an audience of people's opinion. Uh, I remember when Renaissance first started uh, in 2014, we were in the first couple of months and it was our honeymoon. Everything that we did was great and everybody loved every decision that we made. Nothing was a problem. Oh, that was just the best thing I've ever seen. This is the greatest community in the world. Uh, and I would talk to other pastor friends who had issues and I would say, sorry, bro. My church just doesn't have that. We just are, it's just a better, purer version of Christianity. Um, I, I wish I could join you in that, but I can't. A year later, the honeymoon wore off. The honeymoon wore off big time, and things that I thought were okay suddenly started to reveal themselves as problems. Some of these things were small, some of them were larger. And over, and over the course of the next couple of months, I found myself almost depressed at how much I was having to, to navigate. So I reached out to one of my friends who's a pastor in the city, and he's been pastoring for about uh, 15 years. And I, I had a laundry list of things for him to help me figure out how do I walk across everything from you know, removing the bagels, which was a fight. And listen, we, I was ready for it. Uh, from removing the bagels to a larger theological issues at the church. My friend looked at me and he told me something I will never forget. He said, Jordan, I could tell you how to language things. I could tell you how to, you know, create a new culture at your church. I could tell you all these things, but I honestly just think that you need to learn how to be disagreed with. I actually just think that you need to learn how to stand on your convictions. I was like, dude, you don't even know me, bro. You don't even know me. You don't know my story. You don't know everything. I was fighting back tears because the reality of it is and was, I just needed to learn how to take criticism and keep it pushing. You're not ready for leadership unless you're ready for criticism. You're not ready to walk to where God wants you to walk in unless you're ready for criticism. Here's what Jesus is telling his followers in Matthew 5. If you're going to follow me, people are not going to, not everybody's going to like you. And again, I'm not telling you to pick a fight, but I am telling you to stand on your convictions. Don't try to skirt around uh, any period of suffering. 
uh, because you think it's uh, not a part of your journey, it is a part of your journey. And you and I would do well to realign our expectations with what we see in Scripture. Now, suffering comes along with following Jesus. And Paul is writing the Scripture so that, the reason we're going through the Scripture is so that when you encounter things, whether it's big or small, you would be able to have patient endurance knowing that what is happening in your life is not off course. It is the course. Now, Paul in the scripture also talks about something which is really fascinating. Uh, when you read the scripture, it doesn't make as much sense at first, but it's the cause of why we experience suffering in this world. Um, he talks about it in verses 19 through 23. He says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting uh, for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Here the scripture is a reminder of something called the bondage to decay. And uh, the bondage to decay basically means that nothing in this world is as good as it should be. And decay means basically this. If you do absolutely nothing to it, it will continue to erode and erode. One of my pastor friends puts it like this. Decay means that for most of us, uh, the future means our hair will fall out. That's my present. Our stomachs will stick out. That's kind of my present. And our brains will blank out before we finally tap out. Our future is that our hair will fall out, our stomachs will stick out, our brains will blank out before we finally tap out. Left to yourself, with all of the best care that you can provide for yourself, our bodies are a witness that we are subject to decay. Everything in this world is decaying. If you do nothing to it, it never goes in the good direction. Here's what Paul is also pointing to in this scripture about what an amazing hope it is. Um, he's trying to grasp, he's trying to put Christians' eyes not just on the here and now, because the here and now um, is subject to decay. Nothing in this world is as good as it could be. Now, I don't talk about the eternity uh, a lot, um, probably for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them, I probably, to a fault, don't want people thinking that I'm a, a pie in the sky uh, type of guy, and I'm, I'm just, um, hey, it's going to get better in the here on after, and I'm ignoring the realities of the tensions that you live with every single day today. But what Paul is trying to do here in the scripture is also take our minds off of the present and put it into the eternity of what God is trying to do in your life for eternal purposes. This scripture, uh, talking about the groaning that people have, is probably one of the best arguments I know for the existence of eternity. Now, you might be new to church, or you might not know what you believe about the Bible, or about uh, heaven, or hell, or the hereafter, but here's what I do know. You only have hungers and groans for things that exist. You hunger for food because food exists. You get thirsty for water or for something to drink because there is something to quench that thirst. You and I groan that things are not the way that they should be because there is a day coming when things will be made right. Scripture tells us that once upon a time there was that day, and again, another day is coming. And that groaning inside of you is proof that the God has deposited something in you which acknowledges and longs for eternity. But right now, where we live is subject to decay. Now, that's also a reason of our suffering. 
how can you and I live in a world in which everything is decaying and not be touched by that decay? All throughout the Old Testament, they had this one understanding of uh, purity and different things. And one of the ways that they tried to keep themselves pure was to stay away from anything that they felt was dirty. Uh, one of those things being dead bodies, that if you were to come into contact with a dead body, you had to stay away from the camp for a certain number of days and weeks and go through all of these purifying rituals because they knew something that I don't think we acknowledge too often today. It's impossible to come into contact with something that is dying and as decaying and not yourself uh, need some purification. What Paul is talking about in this scripture about the decay of this world, the reason that you and I experience pain, the reason that you and I experience suffering is because we live in this broken world. Now, there's a theologian by the name of Will Gaffney, and she gives a, a, a much more profound way of explaining uh, what, I, what I hope that we're hearing today. I don't want us to hear that God wanted every bad situation or wants um, all the bad things that have happened, and certainly some of the really heinous things that have happened in, in, in you, some of your lives, but God still uses it. Her quote is, God can and does use the things that happen to us to transform us, but God who creates nothing, God who creates from nothing does not require trauma to make us who we will be. God has created everything that we see, ourselves included, just from his word. God does not require trauma. God does not require sin to make you what he wants you to make you. However, what man has meant for evil, God is using for good. Now, there's the cause of suffering, which is the decay of the world that we live in. But the most compelling reason that will give you endurance to persevere is knowing that what is going on in your life it's not only just expected, but there's actually a purpose in it that is producing something in your life. Um, scripture writers, including Paul, uh, mention this fact over and over again. Uh, Paul talks about what's going on in your life right now. These present sufferings are not worth comparing the glory that's going to be revealed to you. And all throughout Scripture, uh, writers tell us uh, about what these pains, what these things are actually doing inside of you. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 19 uh, he says, therefore, we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus our eyes on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here's the weight of scripture in your life. Here's an argument I hope you go home thinking about today. The pains, the frustrations, the hardships, the calamities, all of it is being used. None of it is being wasted. And it is producing something inside of you that probably would not be produced any other way. Uh, one of the first ways I know about this is through humility. Um, suffering removes the illusion in, in your life that you're in control. Nothing like suffering will remove that illusion from you that you are in control of your life. Now, there is, in fact, a very small number of things that you are in control of, and suffering will disabuse you of that notion that you are in control of the entire world, and it will force humility inside of you to be developed because you're going to have to reconcile with all the ways that you don't control anything, and in a lot of ways, that makes you dependent. Uh, this morning, I'm actually reminded of that. Uh, we rely on the custodians here to open a school for us, and normally they're here at 7 a.m., and uh, 7 a.m. came, and they were not here. 8 a.m. came, they were not here. 
and time was pushing, and I was like, well, I don't know where we're going to worship, maybe in the playground outside. Um, and this morning, I have probably prayed more than I did in the last three months combined. Now, the, the primary thing that robs your prayer life is not an inability on what words to say. You, know, you and I know enough words to say. The thing that robs your prayer life is pride. So you don't think you need God. You don't think you need God, so you don't pray. And that's certainly true for my life. Um, this morning, I found myself just praying, Lord, I'm not in control. I, can't, I don't have keys to the door. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how we're going to get set up and all these different things. And I was reminded, God, I am not in control of the situation. Suffering, inconveniences, hardships, they remind you that you're not in control. And that's actually the best place that you could be in. It's not only uh, humility that's produced in us, but it's also comfort. Suffering is a jumping off place for God showing us his love in our lives and us also being able to show that to other people. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, Paul says it like this, Praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we may be able to comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. If you struggle with empathy, uh, if you were to go through a season in life where someone were to actually meet you in your deepest need, uh, if you struggle with uh, being there for other people, if you yourself had experienced seasons where you needed help and God came through and people came through, man, that would radically transform every piece of your life. Some of what God wants to do, even inside the body of Christ, is allow us to experience some of the discomforts so that, I'm not saying this is the only reason, so that you and I would be able to comfort other people. Is it the right thing? Is it the way that we would choose to go? Probably not, but this is one of the ways that God allows us to be the hands and the feet of Christ. One of the last ways that suffering works in our life, in some ways better and more profoundly than anything else, is through ref refining us. Peter explains this in 1 Peter 1, 6-7, when he says that we suffer trials so that the trial of our faith may be proved genuine. And just as fire refines gold and removes all of the impurities, suffering refines us, causing us to turn towards God when we rec recognize that nothing else can meet our needs. Uh, there's a poem about a man who was encountering suffering and him having one notion of how God should move in his life and what suffering actually produced. He says it like this, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given sickness that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty so that I might be needy. I asked for power so that I might have the praise of others. I was given weakness so that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life so that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything that I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all people most richly blessed. We don't know what will produce the results in us that God wants us to have. This is why in verse 26 of Romans 8, it says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. Here's what this is saying. To live a life in the Spirit means that you're going to go to God with certain prayer requests, 
And the Holy Spirit is saying, yeah, she doesn't need that. Yeah, he doesn't need that. What he really needs, what she really needs is not an escape. But she needs to feel your hand in this. She needs to go through, not around. He needs to have your presence in this, not around this. And some of the things that God wants to refine us, though it is hot, it is best done in seasons of our life where we are experiencing some of these pains and these uh, challenges. But sometimes those fires of refinement are really hot. So what do you do in those times? What do you do in the seasons where it is uh, too hot for you to stand on your own? I was reading this in a journal, and it says, in the event of a fire in your home, the last thing that you want to do is run around in a burning house as you see in television. The temperature at head level may well reach 600 degrees, and one blast of heat could destroy your lungs. The only way to survive is on your hands and knees. At floor level, the temperature may only be 150 degrees, and crawling quickly to an exit is the one way to withstand conditions. Sometimes conditions in our lives may be so devastating, and in those times, the best way we can survive is by getting on our knees in prayer. In prayer, we can entrust ourselves to God. In prayer, we can escape some of the heat that God is Welcome to New York City, uh, Church Planting. Some of the heat that God is uh, allowing to be in our life uh, based on simply coming to God and, and trusting in Him. I want to redirect this real quick to 1 Peter 4.19. There's a scripture I want us to go home to. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. What is it that you're, that you're hoping to and looking to, to believe in God's faithfulness to you? There are seasons in life where I can best understand God's faithfulness, not based on what I can see, but based on Jesus on the cross. And when I see God's faithfulness expressed to me with Jesus on the cross, um, I, I realize the depths to which God is willing to go for me. And it, that thing above everything else in life gives me fuel to pursue and to continue to move forward and trusting God, even when the fires are really hot. Let us turn to God right now and entrust ourselves to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how um, nothing in our life is meaningless and nothing in our life is pointless and how you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, would you allow us, even in seasons of discomfort, to, to have the right expectations so that we can patiently, patiently endure. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.